Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and as always, you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Earlier this year, I sat down with Greg Hill and Chris Rubens to talk to them about their electric adventures. And if you'd like to catch that conversation, check out episode number 66. We also discuss in that episode a bit about Greg's background, but in this new conversation, our focus is on the present and the future. And to that end, you're going to hear us talking about the new Canadian chapter of Protect Our Winters, Greg's best advice for how to productively deal with what he calls echo anxiety. We talk about a new app that Greg and we here at Blister are very happy about called 57 Hours that is more effectively connecting guides with skiers, bikers, and climbers. And I ask Greg what piece of backcountry safety equipment he is currently most excited about. So from new gear to new apps to how to go about living in this world, we cover a good bit of territory, and I hope you find this conversation to be beneficial. And now let's get to my conversation with ski mountaineer and activist, Greg Hill. Greg Hill, how are you today? Good. Just finished a great day in the mountains. Dropped my kid off at trampoline and sipping some tea, relaxing. So it's good. I've just done about 12 days of skiing in a row and it's time for a couple of days off. 12 days in a row. Wow. Were these 12 days in kind of roughly the same zone? Well, uh, yeah, I live in Revelstoke, British Columbia, so I mean, there's been a few days on the ski hill because it opened up last weekend, and then mostly in Rogers Pass because the snow line's still kind of high up there, so best place to access it. Okay, twelve days in a row. I I now feel very lazy. I can't wait to be lazy tomorrow on the next day. <laughs> okay, we we will switch we will switch roles. You take time off, and I'll I'll get on the mountain, and. Uh, did you say you just dropped off kid for trampolining? Yeah, so uh, two, both my kids are into trampoline. They've got great coaches here, and they spend hours, seven to ten hours a week, bouncing and flipping and just learning how to learning how their body is in the air. It's pretty neat. I think it'll be a great thing to kind of transfer over to every other sport for the rest of their lives. They're both eleven and thirteen, so hmm. uh, yeah, I just think. I, they're not going anywhere to the Olympics or anything, but I think in terms of skiing or climbing or any of the other things, I feel like trampoline and gymnastics is a great way to learn body awareness and also how to fall because we're all going to fall at some point. <laughs> that is true. How dare you suggest they're not going to the Olympics someday? <laughs> Are you setting uh, caps on the, your kid's potential here? Oh, that's a good point, actually. No, I just, it's, um, I guess for me, I don't see it. I, don't see that as their end game. Neither of them seems to have that drive, but I, uh, I could totally be wrong. You're right. Thanks for calling me out on it. <laughs> <laughs> let's, you know, let's, uh, let's not shut down potential futures, but I guess the point is you're not, you're not some, uh, I don't know, maniacal parent insisting that your kids get on the trampoline to become future Olympians. No, exactly. Definitely not maniacal. Okay. Um, I think my biggest thing is, is, yeah, I encourage them to do whatever, but I'm definitely not pushing them to be the best at anything. I just want them to enjoy it. Um, that kind of segues me into how, how these, basically, I'm trying to pass my passion on to my kids in every way because being a mountain person, such as yourself or me, you, you kind of, you get out there and you realize and you find these great rewards and 
I don't know, personality gains from hiking around the mountains, and climbing or challenging yourself. And that's kind of my goal these days, teach them what, what I love so much and hopefully pass it on because because mm. I've gained so much. I mean, from just gaining confidence as a rock climber when I was 18 and not confidence as a rock climber, but confidence as a person and how that sport kind of helped me. And yeah, I mean, my goal is that all these things that I got taught by the outdoors and challenges is to kind of, you know, go, go them into doing it with me so they also learn and gain from it. Hmm. It's got to be kind of amazing to be the the kid of someone who is rather famous uh, for his ability to walk up a whole lot of vertical feet. Um, so are you already, I think I know the answer here, but are you already getting your kids out on backcountry yeah. missions? How, what, tell me about that. Yeah. Yeah, forever. I mean, we'd boot pack up the hill. I basically, I'd try to keep the rewards really high so that the investment is low, but the rewards are high so that they just really learn to enjoy it. So I'm not pushing them to do 5,000 foot days for sure or anything <laughs> like that. Um, but I mean, I took my son up rock climbing up Udo this summer, which is this multi pitch 5 1 to a summit. You know, yeah, I'm just trying to try to just show them enjoyment. I definitely, I'm not pushing them to be anything like me. I know what I've been through. I just kind of want them to enjoy it. That's all. I'm curious. I mean, as like backcountry skiing in general has just gotten bigger and bigger, I guess I haven't talked to many people, you know, who have kids kind of in that, say, I don't know, eight to 13 year old range, but I guess help me out here. I mean, I think what for so many people, right, you start skiing in bounds and then the backcountry thing comes quite a bit later, but I'm afraid I'm actually not that up on like, are are we getting kids out on skin tracks? Oh yeah, I mean, I've my kids so now they're twelve and thirteen or eleven yeah. and thirteen, and two years ago I guess when they're ten and eleven we started skinning just little laps off the ski hill and it was just this amazing time for me watching them clip into their pin bindings. Hmm. And, kind of touring out and you know i remember walk coming around a corner and watching them both just get excited about this view of this peak that was you know a couple hours away that we we definitely didn't go towards but they were both like wow look at that and then mm. watching them take all the pictures because they just realized that they were in this incredible spot it was definitely i remember i was quite emotional watching it happen and yeah, yeah just and also my son at some point this year he was like oh how far is that peak there and kind of started put it together that he could in fact just walk over there and ski it with me if he so desired. No, that's really cool. And I suspect, I mean, there's going to probably be a lot of kids hitting skin tracks much earlier these days. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I think of back when I stood on my first summit, I was, well, I guess I was probably 20, yeah, right around 20. Mm -hmm. And you know, I've had my, my kids on top of this, the mountain, Mount Mackenzie here in Revelstoke when they were, uh, seven and eight on their first mountaintop, you know, it's a uh, whole different world that I'm exposing them to. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Hopefully, hopefully it doesn't lend itself to the normalization of extreme. And then all of a sudden they're doing wilder and wilder things. It's just kind of an intro to good times and not, doesn't have to get wilder. <laughs> I, maybe it's premature, but I mean, have you already had any of those kind of initial conversations or are we still, I mean, like you said, still very much like, let's keep the days easy, a lot of reward. Like when, I wonder when that time comes up to be like, 
mountains are big and real and dangerous and like it's not a, just a playground yeah no for sure i mean that's right now everything i take them to is a playground and it, it, you know i basically keep them out of avalanche terrain you know touching into it and just the edges but yeah who knows when it gets to that level i part of me worries about it part of me is excited about it that's being a parent being a parent an outdoorsy parent mm-hmm. <laughs> figuring out when to trust and when to instruct and when to scold as far as I know, there's yet to be an algorithm to just punch in to give you the exact time and method for how to have all those conversations. Yeah, to use a, I guess I'll cross that slope when I come to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess, I mean, part of the other things I'm doing, I'm talking about passion, but lately we've uh, Protect Our Winters Canada. We started that in Canada, a Canadian chapter, which is pretty mm-hmm. exciting. I know, as I've said, that how important mountains are to me in the snow and um there's just no real voice in canada protect our winters in the states it's been going on for 11 years and jeremy jones they've got incredible momentum so we've kind of taken some of the momentum and started our own chapter in canada and we've got a bunch of ambassadors we've had four launches in all the in toronto montreal calgary and vancouver kind of the major hubs just kind of trying to wake up the outdoor industry to have a voice to protect and preserve what what we all love Tell me about how you came to be involved in that Canada chapter. How long has this been in the works? I mean, I think the official announcement was only, what, a month or two ago? Yeah, basically September, early Mm -hmm. September is when it became, yeah, we're here. But honestly, two and a half years ago, I think I tried to start it myself, but I any paperwork I got to would just like get this mental block and just like freeze up because it's not my wheelhouse it's you know like i'm i like talking to people i like being adventurous and doing all that stuff but getting to that paperwork i just kept getting blocked and i went to a lawyer and i kind of progressed a bit but i really just like i said it's not it's not what i do but luckily this guy dave herb in ontario just jumped in just about a year ago and him and mike douglas and um mary francois the snowboarder they kind of all jumped in board and like have created a board and now it's now it's all systems go which is fantastic Hmm. it's been it's been really fun being at the launches and we've you know we're only at a thousand members now and you know really just starting but it's uh doing these talks and you know seeing how much you know excitement there is around it how people really want to figure out how to help because we all know that we need to do more and and to be a part of it is great so if we're looking at the canadian chapter of POW versus the United States chapter, do you tend to see this more as, you know, two chapters very much functioning under the same North American umbrella? Yeah, I think if you were to look at both of us, I'm sure most of our issues are the same. And I mean, we need to lobby our Canadian government. You guys, you guys are doing incredible lobbying, your American government. And yeah, I feel like the issues are the same. You know, it's the it, it's policy that needs to change. Individuals need to change. Like I'll, I'll get into what I've been doing, but um, but the policy is massive. I mean, it's it's consumerism. It's all the big businesses that create ninety seven percent of the, the the issues we have. You know, our own personal changes is only about three percent. If you're trying to you know decrease your carbon footprint, you know we can we can change that three percent. But if we if we push policy then we can change that 97% and kind of really make stuff happen. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And yeah, we're definitely following the template that 
that, that Protect Our Winters USA has been doing because they do really well. They've got they've got the lobby, they've got mem- lots of members, and then they've got the down to earth, hot planet, cool athletes where the athletes go and talk to students at schools and really try to inspire them to to look towards the future and figure out what they can do and push their parents into being better Earth citizens and. You know, it's yeah, we're we're following that template because we've seen how effective it is, and we just want to bring it to our turf. Well, very cool, and it'll be interesting to see that chapter grow. If you had to try to sum up, you know, how say uphill of a battle it is to try to get, you know, <laughs> this is the big generalization part: Canadians interested and involved in these topics, or winter folks, right, involved in these topics. Any sense of how that works in Canada versus the U.S.? Well, I don't know. I think that's a tough one. But I think all of us that are out in the outdoors, we love the outdoors. There's no doubt. And I think we we just need to recognize that we need to be stewards for these environments that we love so much. Is it? Yeah, and it's also trying to get over people's fear of change. I mean, mm. a lot of people a lot of people are worried about voicing their opinion because they know they're not perfect and the, yep. the that is like it's so scary because you know oh, i'm not perfect and that, like it's impossible to be perfect you know i i'm trying to not to use fossil fuels for my car but the fact is is the plastic i wear on my boots or you know it's you're just never perfect so i think that's our biggest issue is to convince people that it's okay not to be perfect but we need to change so it's progress not perfection that we need to aim for it's and that, that's, I think, the biggest hurdle is, okay, yeah, I'm not perfect, but look, I'm doing something. You know, instead of, I'm not perfect, I never will be, and I'm not going to do anything because I'm scared of people calling me out for it. We're hypocrites. We're hypocrites. There's like, there's no, no matter what, how much we try to do, we're going to be hypocrites because it's impossible to be perfect. Hmm. And, and we can't be, we got to stop being afraid of that and just, you know, own up to the fact that we're not perfect, but look, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm just trying to be better. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking about this one a lot lately, just in terms of again everything you've just talked about, right? I mean, how to speak out, and yet when knowing none of us are are, are navigating these waters perfectly, and yet the thing I've found myself thinking a lot recently is like, you know, there are real tangible goods to things like travel, right? In terms of opening up and broadening our understanding of the rest of the world and other peoples and the rest. And this is something that I don't have a sophisticated take on this yet. I imagine you might, but it's interesting when we are talking about like, yes, there is a cost. And and like, if we're leaving it on, on travel for the moment, there is a cost, uh, an impact, an environmental impact of going anywhere ever pretty much. And yet, man, I don't think it is the best model for us to sort of never leave our homes ever, you know, or ever to travel to other places or lands. I mean, I think that seeing and exploring is one of the richest things we do in a human life. And like I said, this is not worked out or sophisticated, but a lot of times when I see people... um, let's say going after some of the people who are, you know, uh, spokesmen and spokeswomen for some of these issues and looking at those carbon footprints and looking at the travel, I'm like, well, 
good points, fair points. And yet, I'm not sure I want all of us just never going anywhere. I'm not sure that that actually ends up, it might reduce a carbon footprint. I think there are going to be um, other issues that arise uh, if we make our world smaller and smaller. Do you have anything smarter to say about that? Yeah, I absolutely agree on that. I mean, the traveling I've done in my life is I've been to a lot of the quarters of the world and I gained a great perspective from it. So I agree. I don't think traveling should end, but I think we should be more conscious about it. Mm -hmm. And, and the first step is being conscious about it. Like I actually grew up, my dad was a pilot for Canada. So I grew up being able to fly for free everywhere. And I never, never considered any of the, any of my footprint from it because I was just doing it and it was super simple. But I think the first step is just, okay, I understand there's an impact here. So one, can I offset it another way? You know, that's pretty easy. You buy some carbon offsets that, that helps a little bit. And then, you know, maybe while you're in those other countries, maybe you do some good there, do some something right. I don't, I don't know exactly what it is, but it's like, instead of being a total, total selfish trip, just kind of enjoying everything. Maybe you spend two weeks, you know, digging a well in Africa. I don't, I don't really know, but maybe there's ways to offset it that way. Mm-hmm. That would, that would also bring back a little bit more to your own life. Um, that's kind of my goal. I haven't my next big travels for adventure. Whenever once I'm done my own personal challenge I'm on now is that I I want to fly places. Sure, I'd love to go to Mongolia. Cause I've always wanted to go there. But then when I go there, what can I do to you know offset my flight? Sure, buy the carbon offsets. But then while I'm there, can I? I don't even know. You know, can I influence some of the kids to start running on their mountain trails, enjoying nature? Who knows? You know. Mm-hmm. But it's fun to kind of think about it and figure out maybe there are great things you can do to offset it in, in other ways that'll probably actually bring back more emotionally and bring back more to your life by spending that time, not just focused on your own travels. Tough one. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it is a tough one. And like I said, I think that because honestly, like one of the things that weirdly, I guess, but I do find myself worrying a little bit about is. I don't think it is great to have a bunch of us walking around with these like, I need to be careful here because I'm still working through this, but these guilty conscience or sort of sense of original sin, I feel like we kind of have evolved away from a society where there was very prominently both in politically and, and, uh, and, and in society, kind of this doctrine of original sin, like you are wrong by virtue of being born. So I'm. It, it does sometimes feel like we are, this is the new original sin. The fact that being alive does have an environmental impact. And I just wonder if there's a way to um, acknowledge the impact that we do have, be genuinely conscientious about that, and yet still be able to acknowledge and recognize that there is real value and real richness in travel and getting to meet people who don't live where we live and who maybe aren't like we are. I don't know. And I, and I, again, I will apologize again. These are not sophisticated thoughts, but they are things that I've been thinking about about recently. But I don't like this idea that we kind of moved away from maybe one notion of original sin and now we're sort of replacing it. 
And yet, like, we need to be conscientious, right? So again, enlighten me. Yeah. What am I missing or how do, how do you make better sense of this? Well, I agree. There's something, I think the term these days is eco-anxiety or mm. there's this, there is this entire guilt that people are starting to feel because they recognize it. But I mean, I just think we have to act on that a bit. You, like, you know, don't just get down the wormhole of guilt and not do anything, do some traveling, do some things, but be conscious, like as we were saying, and, and try to change your lifestyle in the ways you can. And, and I mean, that'll bring you some rewards and then still go do your traveling. And, but yeah, I, I just think the first step is really just considering your actions and your impacts all the time. And yeah, and not in a burden, like a, not as a burden, but just as a reality, you know, don't turn it into this negative thing, turn it into this is, this is the truth. So how do I deal with it? And, and, and not to get too, yeah, too down about it. Mm-hmm. Cause it can, I mean, it can definitely you go down that wormhole and all of a sudden you don't want to leave your house or wear anything. It's all got its own footprint that's killing the earth. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, as a no real answer there, did I? I just kind of waffled. <laughs> well, yeah, but I do think, I mean, I do think this is going to be something that is going to be good for us to try to think through and get clear on. And just from this you already used the word stewardship or that we ought to be good stewards. And I think, man, that has a very positive connotation, doesn't it? You know, that's not talking about original guilt or original sin or echo anxiety. It's just, let's take care of a place of a place we love and that we do want to pass on to say your 11 and 13 year old kids, uh, that kind of thing. But I think it's going to, I mean, this is all emerging and evolving. And I, I look forward to us sorting this out both in our own behaviors like and in our own kind of mental head spaces because I, I think both need to happen, right? Yeah, and I think it's let's focus on the positives. You know, there's going to be negatives, deal with those. But I think if you do, like like you said, stewardship sounds positive, sounds great. And, and I, I think if you do do these actions that, there are great feelings. So yes, there's the eco anxiety, but let's, you know, instead of getting down the anxiety hole, do some positive things and, and, and look towards a brighter future. So speaking of positive things, when I talk to you and Chris Rubens on this podcast, man, that was almost a year ago, uh, how the time flies, you were, well, we were talking about your electric adventures uh, just in case somebody isn't up on those or missed that podcast conversation, talk to me a little bit about what that is and where the Electric Adventures uh, motion or project is these days. Yeah, I guess, I mean, years ago, I started looking at the way I was adventuring and I drive in my F-350, drive up to a trailhead, pack back my sled off the truck snowmobile up into the beautiful nature, get off that, go for a great day of ski tour and come back, get on my sled, drive home and back onto my F-350 diesel, drive home. And I started to look at, look at it and go, God, you know, what, what is my impact here? And did a carbon calculator, and, you know, started to realize what was happening. And, um, one year I, in 2011 or 2012, I was like, Oh, for this month, I'm going to bike to my summits and, and try to be, you know, less of my impact that way for a month. So I, I biked uh, my, my trailheads and it was incredible. I did 11 different mountains and biking to them and back it was super rewarding, but 
the problem is, is that it, there were really hard days and nobody was really joining me. And they, they'd drive by in their truck. There'd be a spare seat for me. They'd get to the trailhead. I'd meet them there. We'd, we'd go up. And then they'd drive home and I'd bike home. And, and, and what I, I realized at that point, I was like, well, this is great, but nobody that's sane is going to get onto this because it's too hard. Like, we need to find easy solutions to our problems because we're all lazy and easier solutions are the only ones that are going to work. So it took a few years and, and yeah, yeah, that guilt continued with me. And then a couple of years later, I kind of looked at everything. I was like, okay, I'm going to look at my kids and like, I'm going to try to be better for them. So I sold my F-350, left my snowmobile in my driveway rusting, um, gave up heli guiding, heli ski guiding, which I'd done for years. Um, and basically tried to, I'm trying to climb and ski, well, climb, ski, whatever, a hundred different summits electrically, you know, out of an, a knee car. So our first trip was down the volcanoes, down the coast. And Chris Rubens and I did six of the volcanoes, Rainier, down to Shasta. It's this incredible trip and in a little Nissan Leaf. And it was the kind of the first electric adventure. And it was pretty neat. And it's like, I was just trying, you know, all those, the electricity is all hydropowered. So it was kind of decent electricity you know just trying to like look at adventure and figure out if we can do it differently and i mean on that trip we saw thousands of people on all the different mountains and we were the only ones in a little electric car and basically just trying to show that it can be done and you know I, I was like well what kind of change is that it's just us and then i realized that if that change echoed a bit long a bit more and in five years 20 percent of the people are driving electric cars you know that that would be an impact and then maybe Another five years from that, and 50% of the outdoor people are driving electric cars. You know, it just it became this challenge of mine to kind of dispel all the myths, myths around electric cars and show that you can adventure. And um, since those first six volcanoes, I've now summited 60 different mountains, some of them climbing, some of them running, some of them biking, um, and always accessing all these trailheads with my little electric car. Um, driven 60,000 kilometers now in electric car which is what 40,000 miles so hmm. you know just my just my own little changes have amounted to quite a bit of fuel saved you know what like I don't even know 2,000 gallons mm -hmm. you know it's just it's a drop in the bucket but it's a you know if it, it feels it's a fun little change um yeah so that's that's my goal right now is to kind of prove that there's different ways to adventure and that we should kind of consider how we access these places so that we can be better stewards for them and do I believe that electric cars are the answer? I mean, yes and no, because I know that there's rare earth metals in them. I know that there's issues with that. And quite, you know, if the electricity is well sourced, that's good. But if it's coming from um, coal or whatever, well, it's not great, but it's supposedly better if you do all the math. But yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to look at different solutions to, to see if we can be better. And yep. You know, it's, I mean, if I look at the rest of the world, it's basically a first world problem. Here I am, some pro skier going, oh, well, uh, I'm going to try to be better. So I'm going to not take my F-350. I'm going to lease an electric car. You know, it's kind of the funny, funny kind of movement, I guess. But it's also where I can have impact because it, it is my life. The way I was living it was not great. And, and since then, I mean, I basically half my carbon footprint every year by driving electrically because I drive a lot and also by lifestyle changes. I'm a weekday vegetarian typically, so I only eat twice a week and the rest of the time it's vegetarian. 
And then due to all this, I started to just look at everything and it's kind of, a, I'm in a wormhole now. I mean, mm-hmm. trying to reduce it, what we're using, trying to recycle all the plastic, it kind of becomes this crazy wormhole, like I said, but it's also super satisfying. I mean, just to know that I'm trying to be better. And, and like I said before, I'm owning that I'm a hypocrite. I mean, next week I, I'm flying to France. I have to, it's my job. I have, I'm going to go prototype some stuff with Solomon and work on some different gear. And I can't not go there because, well, that's part of my job. Yep. So, you know, there, as much as I can be good on one side, I'm never going to be good on the other, but at some point we have to make movements. So like I was saying before, this, these are what I'm doing. I'm trying to own up to being a hypocrite and just be better. And honestly, like it, it does, it feels good. It feels good to know that I'm trying. Yeah. You talked about earlier that you said 97%, I think you said, of carbon emissions are coming from businesses and, I guess, manufacturing. Yeah. How? So that's, go ahead. Yeah. I'll go for it. So if this is 97% from businesses, where the biggest opportunities are to make in terms of the reduction, um, whether that is in manufacturing, whether that is in transportation and travel, what can you what can you tell us? What do you know on this, or or how how concrete is this information as opposed to still murky waters? I think it's pretty concrete. I mean, I'm definitely no scientist, but from what I've seen, I mean, the two bigger sectors that we can change are transport and electric or energy. Mm-hmm. Those are the two big, big ones. And I mean, that's one of the reasons that I'm invested in my, this electric car because you vote with your dollars. And I think that we need to change technologies from what we have. And like, like I said, maybe the electric cars aren't perfect, but investing in something different is gonna help us change into something different and better. Um, but yeah, those are the two biggest things, definitely transport and energy consumption. If we kind of figure out how to make those better, that'll, that'll be a huge step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it is. I mean, we, we, we vote with our dollars. So it's like when you're looking at all these big companies and buying from things, it's like if we can figure out the companies that are better to buy from, cause you know, they have better packaging or they offset all their travel or, you know, like then you're investing in companies that, that think like you. And I think that's kind of becoming more and more important now is people are realizing that, that the stuff they buy, they want to, it also represents who they are. So if companies are all changing and being better then that's the gear they want to wear. Yeah. Yeah. And you were talking about earlier, you know, the, the aim is not to be perfect today. The aim today is to make progress. So I think, you know, to be able to support companies that are committed to making you know, tangible progress, that seems about like the least we could be doing to support those companies, right? Yeah, I think it's really neat. I'm friends with Blake Mykoski from Tom's Shoes. Yeah. And he, he, he just came out with that whole, um, I'm, I don't know exactly the term, but, I, I, you know, he's trying to support uh, nonprofits that are trying to help with the gun issue in the States. And, you know, a so many consumers now, when they know they buy Tom's shoes, they know that they're helping the fight against, you know, proper gun usage. So it's, and it, it, a bunch of his customers came out and were like, just, they felt good because they knew that the, uh, there was added value to what they were buying. And it 
represented more of their values. And that, that I really hope is going to become more, more, more important for everybody. And we do when we buy something, we think, okay, is this a good company? Great. Mm-hmm. That feels good. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I, I think it's more and more from in the next five, 10 years is that people are going to vote with a dollar and buy stuff that really, like I said, represents who they are and what they believe in. It's not, my, our parents' generation, I mean, the biggest thing was saving money in places like Costco and stuff or what have you, where you can save a lot of money is, was always the main thing. But I think that there's a sway back to, to values. All right. I hope maybe it's just the circles that I see on all my social medias, but I, I hope there is a movement towards that. I do think that is trending. And I think we are beginning to realize maybe that there is um, the lowest price tag of an of a thing of a product you can find doesn't mean it has the lowest impact in imprint i think people are getting savvier and savvier about that and um i don't see that trend going away yeah and usually it's a better quality thing i mean right now i get this i get all my meat and or like we can meat or whatever and my milk and cheese and stuff delivered from a, a local supplier who sources it within 100 miles of here so like just it just feels good. Yeah, it's going to cost me a little bit more. There's no doubt. That's one of the issues is that to be environmental, it costs a little bit more, but um, tastes better, feels better. Yeah. Well, and when you say it costs more, it costs more in one specific way, right? It costs more it, in terms of a price tag, in terms of what you're shelling out from your wallet, but it costs less in other ways. And I think that that's the work and that's the, the switch that needs to get flipped, right? Everything costs along multiple verticals. Yeah. And so exactly. just to focus on like the, the, the price tag, it's like, sorry, that's a pretty limited view of the world and looking at the costs of things. Yeah, I absolutely agree. But I mean, you see Black Friday when people are swarming stores because they know they're going to save a lot of money. It's, mm-hmm. it's a, I, yeah, it's, a, <laughs> it's an uphill battle. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. But, but we do have to fight it because if we don't, nobody, uh, you know, if you're waiting for somebody else to change the world, it's not going to happen. You kind of have to be the change you want to see. So, Back to electric vehicles. I'm curious to get your take on, we're just seeing, it seem, seems like we are seeing this proliferation of new companies introducing electric cars or electric pickups or old companies making commitments to producing electric vehicles or to producing more of them, et cetera. I'm just curious to get your take on all of this as, as, uh, as I imagine you're somebody that is, um, fairly attuned and, and seeing the same stuff I am. Yeah. I mean, I don't, um, I drive a Chevrolet Bolt mm-hmm. that's what I have. and it, it's an incredible little car, but it's, it's a hatchback. It's, it's two wheel drive, you know, it got right around $40,000 and, um, you know, it's not my ideal vehicle. Like, let's, who am I kidding? Like, I want an SUV that's all-wheel drive or a truck, something that can get me up my logging roads and get me deep into the backcountry. But, um, and that's, I think, what we're seeing now is that every company started to make the cars and they know that that's great and people want them. But, you know, like the Rivian ad that came out with their futuristic truck the other day, like, yeah. I mean, God, everybody's freaking out because we all really want that. I mean, give me a four four by four truck that has a good range and I can live my life with it. I'm in once the, once the price tag comes down a little, I think, <laughs> I think, 
a lot of that's that is part of the problem is that you know at the part this part of the curve we're on now is everything's going to be expensive at first mm-hmm. till till it gets modernized enough that that the factories that it doesn't cost as much to make everything but um yeah i mean i i love there's so many there's the bollinger jeep out there that looks yep. incredible there's you know like there are some saliva inducing vehicles out there that when my lease is up in 2021 that i'm going to be looking at for sure yeah, it's interesting. And and I do think, I mean, for some of us in the outdoor industry, you know, frankly, we we do need to be the early adopters on some of this stuff, I think. And because if not us, who else are we expecting to sort of make these moves? We're the ones kind of on the forefront. We're the ones that are seeing the changes in nature and the forest fires and, you know, if yeah, exactly. If, we're the ones that love it the most. We should be the first ones to do it. And I also think we we have that explorer's gene. You know, we're willing to tread where people haven't before, which is sort of like why I undertook electric cars or electric adventures is because it's like, well, this is this is a journey that hasn't been taken yet. I, I want to get on it and see if it works. And then once one person proves that it works, then it kind of echoes. And soon enough, it's the norm. I know earlier you mentioned that uh, you used to get in your your 350 and then get on your sled. Are you paying any attention to emerging companies and technologies in terms of electric sleds? Oh yeah, definitely. I've tested one a couple of times now. Um, this company out of Montreal called Taiga. Yeah. Yeah. They're, um, I mean, it's, it's first off they're the biggest numbers are going to be like people that ride sleds into Yellowstone or on ski hills, you know, it's not going to be a mountain sled at first, but, can you just imagine like you quiet get on a sled that's quiet chat to your friend as you double up and go ski touring somewhere like it, to me it's the dream and i i've definitely communicated with them often about trying to you know go on a few adventures this spring with one of their prototypes to a to see if it works and b to i just can't wait till i drive up to a trailhead in my little electric car towing an electric sled and park beside my old self with the f350 and the, the snowmobile and go and do the same thing as is what I used to do. I don't, I don't use snowmobiles right now, and it's—I mean, my snowmobiles are the best way to go further and deeper, and it's—it's it's, it's a tough one. Yeah, yeah. This is um, this is like in the top three things we're talking about the most in Crested Butte. Uh, let's just say uh, Tiger's in the top three right now. This ends up being the topic. Every conversation seems to come back or, to around to this. So. Uh, we're hoping to check these things out too and, and praying it's a good product and looking forward to checking them out. Yeah. It's just the quiet snowmobile is so cool. Hmm. And, and, you know, instant torque, all the other things that come with it. And I'm, I really do look forward to the electric snowmobile and, you know, I'm patiently waiting, bugging them once in a while so I can test it. And I do <laughs> hope that I'll get a couple of adventures in off one this year. I'd love to go snowmobile in 20 miles and camp and then go ski tour a mountain and come back and, you know, snowmobile back to my car, it'd be incredible. Let's talk a bit about guiding. I actually just learned and feel kind of silly about this, that uh, guiding is something you've been doing for a long time. I, I thought you only like walked up mountains by yourself or, you know, sometimes let Chris Rubens come along. <laughs> yeah, I um, I think I became an, an assistant ski guide in 2003. And sort of, I did it as a way to gain knowledge of the mountains because I, I knew that I was 
obsessed with the mountains and that I needed to get as much info as I could from all these mentors so that I could not, wouldn't kill myself. And uh, yeah, I became an assistant guide in 2003. I've kind of been I was an assistant guide forever because most of the time I do, I just go with my friends adventuring. And eventually I became a full ski guide in 2011, which is, means that I can take people basically anywhere in Canada skiing. And um, it's always been something I, I love doing. I love sharing the mountains with people. And yeah, I've kind of been doing it forever. And um, it's, it, it is super amazing. I just did three days with some some friends. They're friends, but they're clients. And it, it's great. You know, they come here and they know that that I'm going to take them to the best skiing that they can get to. Hmm. And it, it, it's so fun. Actually, it's, I've been guiding them for three or four years now. And my last run with them was the worst run I've ever taken them on, but it's <laughs> low tide. It's low tide and plan A didn't work out, but you know, we did get a fantastic two runs in. There's just the last end of the third that wasn't so good, but <laughs> um, no, I've always, I mean, I'm a professional skier. It's been, it's great, but I also know that at some point, I'm probably not going to be, hmm. you know, as unless I keep working my butt off, which I keep trying because it's an incredible career that I've got. But at some point, I, I may have to guide 100 days a year. I typically guide 30 days a winter now. But um, something neat that's come along lately is that for years, I've had great clients and then I lose track of them. <laughs> and then I have some great clients again the next year and then I kind of lose track of them. And it's it's definitely something I realize is that I need, I need kind of need something to help me keep track of them. Um, lately this app called 57 hours has come along and it's, it sounds silly, but it's helping me organize myself. I'm a, I'm a guide. I'm a mountain person. I mean, paperwork and invoicing and all that thing is, is not, you know, my forte, my forte is adventure and endless energy. So this little app is kind of helping me streamline it a bit and Ideally, it'll help me keep clients for years to come and develop great relationships with them. And yeah, so far it's been working out. That's really cool. And yeah, we um, Victor from from Fifty Seven Hours reached out to us last year and was telling us about this app that uh, he and his team were working on. And we had a chance to meet up last season with him. And of all the guides I know, and you know, of course, not not you, Greg, except you just kind of indicted yourself, but. I'm like, this sounds perfect because most of the guides I know, like the paperwork and the, you know, and tracking all of the stuff, everything not associated to guiding in the mountains, not their forte. No, exactly. I mean, this will like kind of allow you to focus more on the guiding forte and the back work gets, gets done by the app. Yeah, it, it should really help. What I, for me, I, I love a few features is that I will, in the summer, I can send out a blast to all my ski touring clients and they can mm. be like, oh yeah, I, and I can look at the calendar and go, oh, I could, I could get Greg in February this year. Instead of being in the middle of the summer, just sitting there going, like, what do I send them each an email? Do I, and, and then not doing it and then losing clients. I mean, I've had some great clients and I know that I don't know how to get in touch with them anymore because that, I did have an email at some point. <clears throat> in my, in my email thing, I do have a, uh, a guide clients thing, but I never email anybody from it because I don't, I don't, it just feels awkward. Whereas it seems like this app is you can taking the awkwardness out of approaching people and kind of streamlining it for me. Well, and I think the other thing too, is we've talked a decent amount in various podcasts that as backcountry skiing continues to grow, 
mountain biking, climbing, that, that stuff has obviously been there, but like that isn't exactly diminishing. And I just still do really like the idea rather than simply arming a bunch of people with backcountry equipment where they can go get into a bunch of trouble. I love the idea that like we can simplify and get a better platform where if somebody's like, Hey, you know, I've done a little bit of backcountry skiing or maybe none, but I've got a way now that I can like pretty easily take a look at, um, you know, various areas of the country and around the world, see what guides are in that area and just connect. To me, that seems like a fantastic use of technology, you know, to pair up inexperienced people with extremely experienced folks. Yeah, I, I've never been on the other end of looking for guides, but yeah, how do you find guides in Revelstoke? You, you Google guides in Revelstoke? You know, now with this, you'll just go to the map or uh, type in Revelstoke and you'll be able to find guides here. So yeah, I, I, I really feel like it's gonna take out a lot of the guesswork and and get people better days that they've ever had instead of them either going on their own because they couldn't figure it out, uh, stumbling around or, I mean, the guided industry is interesting. I think it's, there's been a switch lately where people realize that it's worth paying for professionalism because you're somewhere new. You could you say you've got five days, you could spend half the time stumbling around, not knowing where to go, you know, reading a guidebook, kind of thinking that works, but if you're willing to pay for a guide, he'll know where to take you every every time, you know. Except that last that last run today, but that <laughs> that, that was Plan B, Plan B. So, and, and again, by the way, and you're upping the safety factor, right? And I think that's important to me because I do worry. I mean, we sit here putting out all these super long product reviews on stuff, but. I do think it is a little messed up if we are giving equipment that lets these people basically go get into trouble. And so making this, you know, more seamless. So I am actually hopeful that, um, you know, this is, uh, this 57 hours will become a way that lines up people with destinations and trips that they're interested in with guides that do really know their stuff. That all seems like win, win, win. Yeah, but, I mean, the safety thing is huge. I absolutely agree with you. With all the companies I work with, one of the things we try to do is inspire uh, the desire to learn and to, to take courses and to find mentors or get guided because, it, I mean, it's adventure. And one of the things that qualifies adventure is that there has to be risk involved. So um, if we all like adventure, then let's figure out how to how to deal with that risk in the right way. And I mean, for me, I've God, I've been taking first aid courses and rope work and everything to make to make it as safe as possible out there. And then in the case that something happens, I've got that knowledge to back myself up and get them out of it. Um, I mean, even today, I was off in this valley by myself with my two clients. It was great. But then three of my friends came in who are all guides. And I was like, oh, great. My safety net just got huge. This is perfect. You know? And, and you do, you just want to make it as safe as possible out there. And that kind of increases the fun. Well, to wrap up, I feel like I should just ask you in terms of sort of playing safe in the mountains, you know, you mentioned taking first aid courses, AVI courses. I'm guess I'm curious if there's anything currently for you, whether it's in terms of equipment or whether it's in terms of education that at this moment in time where you're like, man, I wish everybody would go take this particular course or God, I wish everybody would get this particular piece of equipment or, or how are you thinking about that right now in terms of the, what do you wish um, all of us 
backcountry travelers were doing? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, a few years ago, I made a couple of different uh, tips and trick videos just on how to play safe out there and little tricks like that. And, you know, my seven terrain tricks was one of the videos or five rules of risk, these things that I do to stay safe. But I think right now, the biggest thing is these personal locators. They are like, they're game changing where no matter where you are, and they're so small that you can, you can be in the middle of nowhere, no cell service, nothing. And, and be, you know, say everything's fine, but you're going to be four hours late. You can just press the, press it, select your, Hey honey, all's well, just going to be late, you know, and send send the message. And to me, those are, those are incredible. That, that is the biggest game change these days. Like the one I have is but an inch by two inches, you know, it just hides in my bag. And if anything ever happens, and I'm in the middle of nowhere. It's like, boom, locate me, you know, SOS, find me. Yeah, I think that they're the game change these days. Well, Greg, this has been fun. It's good to sort of check in with you and learn what you're thinking about these days and what you're up to. I think you're, you're off to do some product development meetings. Is that the most immediate thing on the horizon, aside from resting after 12 days of, in a row of skiing? Yeah, no, the next two days, I, I've got lots of projects that I'm working on my computer. Um, I am, I've been trying to write a book for about five years, so i got to work on that a bit. But no, I, I've got, yeah, just relax, nothing too pressing after that, Christmas and all the great things that are coming with that. But I mean, I guess my takeaway from our conversation is it's just, it's just that we all have to look at ourselves and in a positive light, make changes and you know, know that we need to, so let's do it and have some fun with it. And not get all eco anxiety and stressed about it, and not you know we're not going to be perfect, but let's just all do our little things. Little things do add up. Progress, not perfection. Yeah, exactly. I love that saying because it really does kind of ring true. Hmm. Well, Greg, thank you very much. Uh, this has been fun, and I look forward to doing it again down the line sometime. Yeah, Jonathan, thanks a lot for your interest, and yeah, we'll chat again. All right, man. Take care. Yeah, you too. Bye. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Greg Hill for the conversation. And for those who would like to see what's going on over at Protect Our Winters Canada, go to protectourwinters.ca. And if you'd like to learn more about 57 Hours or to see about linking up with Greg for a guiding trip, go to 57hours.com. That's the numbers, 57hours.com. Or you can download the 57 Hours app on Google Play or in the Apple Store. Thanks, everybody, and we will talk to you again very soon.